There are those who will say, I believe that there was a historical figure named Jesus Christ. Some will go so far as to say, well, I believe he was a great teacher. He was a wonderful example. He had a positive influence. But the fact is, Jesus Christ came to this earth as the Savior. And the greatest thing we can say about him, while we are thankful for his teaching, thankful for his example, we above all give thanks that he is the Savior of sinners. My subject, Jesus Christ, the only Savior. We read from the book of Acts, chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Peter and John had gone to the temple, and at the gate of the temple, they met a man who was seeking help. He was asking alms. In chapter 3, verse 6, then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. Now, this man had been there for years, depending on people to give him a few coins as they went into the temple to worship. And he was expecting to receive some help in that regard from Peter and John. But Peter responds, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him in the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. What a remarkable transformation. Here's a man, they were all acquainted with him, had been there for years, and no doubt most of them had helped him along his way, but he was still in the same plight. But when Peter and John speak to him in the name of Jesus Christ, he does something he'd never been able to do before. He gets up and walks. He's walking and praising God. Verse 11. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? He's making it clear that this miracle was not a result of his worthiness or his power. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob the God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up 
and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. A lot of people have the idea that preaching ought always to be consoling, that it ought always to be a message of comfort. Well, I love to deliver messages of comfort. There are certainly many principles in the scripture, many texts to which we could turn, find a comforting message. But there are times there's another message needed. And somebody might say, Peter, it just seemed a little out of place. These people are amazed at the miracle and no doubt rejoicing that this man is able to walk. And you want to bring up the fact that they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer be granted unto you. When Pilate gave the option, he thought maybe they would surely say, let Jesus go, but uh, keep Barabbas a prisoner. But they said, no, no. You can let this criminal go free, but concerning Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. And so you kill the prince of life whom God had raised from the dead, whereof we are all witnesses. A very bold message. Very direct, very convicting, bringing the facts before these people of their great sin and their great need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren... I want that through ignorance ye did it, as did your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. So while you are accountable for your actions, you're responsible for your sinful deed, this was all in harmony with God's sovereign purpose the very purpose for which he had sent his son into the world was to die. Now notice verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So he doesn't try to defend these people. He does say it no doubt was because you were ignorant, but he still holds their feet to the fire and said, you're responsible. You did the wrong thing. You sinned, and therefore you need to repent. And this is a continuous message throughout the New Testament. From John the Baptist to Jesus to the apostles, here Peter then is calling on the people to repent. For what purpose? That they might be converted. That their sins might be blotted out. Verse 7. They were then brought before the authorities and asked by what power or by what name he is made whole. They'd already been addressing the people, but now they're brought before the authorities and they're asking the question, how did this happen? By what name? They responded, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then continued with the words of our text, neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So as they...
declare that this healing was accomplished in the name of Jesus Christ and by his power. And he was to be exalted and praised as a result of it. He then goes on to speak of the fact that as Jesus Christ was able to heal this afflicted man, he's the only one that can save sinners. He is the only way of salvation. And so he preaches the gospel message. So as we look at this declaration, we want to consider, first of all, the need of the Savior. Secondly, the sufficiency of the Savior. Next, the exclusivity of the Savior. And then the greatness of the Savior. First of all, we think about the need. Many see no need of a Savior because they don't believe in God. They don't believe that there is a true and living God. They don't believe that there is one to whom they must give an account. They don't believe that there is a day of judgment. And we read of this in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. This word hold is a word that means to suppress. They were seeking to hold it down. They were trying to suppress the truth and says God's wrath is revealed from heaven against them. Now, many would like to think about God as though he never displays wrath, as though he would never mete out punishment, as though he would never judge the wicked. But the God of the Bible is holy, hates sin, and will punish sinners. And so his wrath is against these who seek to suppress the truth about God, seek to hold it down, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I've had people say to me, well, I just, I can't believe in God because there's not enough evidence. If he would just give me some further proof, I, I, I might be able to believe it. God says, I've given you all the proof you need. I've made it clear to you. His handiwork displays his existence. You look into the stars of the sky at night, the brilliance of the sun at noonday. You look at the trees and the flowers. You look at a human being, the intricate parts of the human body that must function in order for one to live. And surely you have to know none of this could have happened by accident. By some strange, mysterious explosion. It happened because God is the sovereign creator and brought it about. And he says, furthermore, I've put something in every human being to make them know there is a God. So God says, you're without excuse. The person says, I don't feel like I need a savior because I'm not sure there is a God. God says, he lives, you're accountable you're without excuse. Well, then some who will say, well, I believe there is God, but the God that I believe in would never punish anybody. Well, the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power 
and will not at all acquit the wicked. God's not going to just overlook the sinful situation and say, well, it's, 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 it's not that significant. No, he will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. See, when a person speaks in this vein, I just don't believe that God would ever punish anybody. They obviously have no concept of the holiness of God. God being absolutely holy is angry with the wicked every day. He hates sin. His perfect nature demands that he hates sin and punish sin. And then there are those that would say, well, I feel that I'm good enough. I, I, I think I'll be okay. I've just been amazed at how many people I've talked to over the years some whose lives were in total disarray. All of us are lawbreakers. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But some of these individuals I'm thinking about were in deep trouble in every category of life. They'd been in and out of jail. They had committed so many crimes and their record was deplorable. And yet they would say, I think I'll be okay. Uh, Say, I, I think I've got a good heart. Well, the problem is, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's where the sin comes from. So, just think that somehow I'm going to be all right is totally contrary to the teaching of God's word. Jesus talked about the Pharisee and the publican that went up to the temple to pray in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, and I fast twice in the week and give tithes of all that I possess. Now, I doubt that anybody listening to me today has ever prayed that kind of a prayer out loud. You know that that's very inappropriate. It's a display of pride. But there may have been times that down deep inside you were looking at other people and you were saying, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm sure better than they are. I'm sure glad I haven't done some of the things they've done. And I do go to church all the time. And I do read the Bible. and I do. That's the language of the Pharisee. He's saying, based on my morality and based on my religious exercise, I think I'm all right. But his prayer really wasn't a prayer. It was just a declaration of his own self-righteousness. He went down to his house with his prayer, so-called, having been rejected while the publican who smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, had his prayer heard. So even if imperfection is admitted, somebody said, well, I know I'm not perfect, but then they go on to say, but I haven't done all that much wrong. So is a person to escape judgment because they haven't done all that much wrong? If a person appears in a courtroom today and says to the judge, well, I only stole from one person. I didn't steal from everybody. 
You think that's going to make a difference? No, the fact they stole from one person, they're a thief. Or I only killed one person. Didn't, didn't kill several. Is that going to mean they're off? No. That means they've broken the law and they're going to face the penalty. Breaking one of God's law makes you a lawbreaker. A criminal. And I said, well, I, I, I never like to think of myself like that. No, none of us do. But the fact is, as a lawbreaker, as a violator of God's holy standard, we are justly condemned. And the scriptures declare that all are condemned. First of all, we're condemned because we're related to the fallen parent, Adam. Adam stood as the head and representative of the human family. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, all of us were in Adam. He represented the whole human family. Not all of the human family is in Christ. Those who are in Christ, those who have believed on him, those who have been redeemed by him, they are in Christ. All that are in Christ are made alive. And so we're sinners condemned because we're part of the human family. And we're sinners by practice. We're born with a sinful nature. You look at a little child. They're so beautiful and sweet and precious and we love them so much. But they get up about three years old and they begin to learn that sometimes they think it's to their advantage to lie. Can you believe that? That a little three-year-old would lie? Well, I've heard reports that they do. Walk into the kitchen and the cookie jar is out on the counter and there are crumbs beside it and this little guy's got crumbs all over his face. And the mother says, did you do that? Not me. It wasn't me. The, the evidence is clear. He, he had violated the rule. He was, he was in the cookie jar. He decided that he would lie to try to get out of it. Well, the description that God gives of sinners in Romans chapter 3 is very explicit. Without reading it all verbatim, we'll just run through the list of things that are in this Passage, Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, starts with the fact that there is none righteous, no, not one. So if there's one person who says, well, I think I can excuse myself from this number because I just haven't done all that much that's really bad. I, I think basically I'm a good person. Well, that's not the way God views you. He doesn't view me or any of us that way. He says all have sinned. There's none righteous. No, not one. And next he says, there's none that understands. By nature, man doesn't understand the truth about God. He fashions a God after his own preferences. He doesn't understand the holiness of God by which he abhors that which is evil. He doesn't understand the justice of God. He doesn't understand sin. He doesn't understand himself. So, man apart from the effectual work of the Spirit to reveal these things to him, he does not know. He does not understand. Next it says, there's none that seeketh after God. 
Now, obviously, there are people who seek after false gods. They try to find a God that suits their preference. They seek after that God, but they don't seek after the true God because by nature, we're at enmity against God. We are his enemy. Man doesn't like the way God operates his business. I don't like to be told what I'm to do and not do. I don't want to be accountable. It just appalls me to think that uh, somebody suggests I would have to stand in the presence of Almighty God in the day of judgment and all of my sins be revealed and I should have to suffer accordingly. So there's none that seek that God. They run from him. It says then they have all gone out of the way. Not just some people, all people. They've gone out of the right way. They've gone in the wrong direction. They have together become unprofitable. Now the fact is, a person in nature may participate in some charitable activities, do something that is commendable on the human level, but when it comes to being able to do something that is acceptable in God's sight, he says, with, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So a person might do works that are praised by others, but they're not acceptable in God's sight. They have become unprofitable. And then a repetition, really, of what we read in the first line. There is none that does good, no, not one. Not a single one that does good in God's sight to make him acceptable. Their throat is an open grave. They lie. They'll lie to their own advantage. They'll try to lie to themselves. They'll try to lie to God. They'll try to lie to other people. With their tongues, they've used deceit. Surely we live in a day when there's much confusion. And uh, you get to the place you wonder, who can you believe? And you know already when you look at the news on television that it's delivered with prejudice. And you think, well, I wonder which part of this is right. What can I depend on? Well, yes, with the tongue they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Say, this isn't going to make anybody feel good. Obviously, it wasn't intended for that. It is used by the Holy Spirit of God to convict a person of their sin and of their desperate need of Jesus Christ as the Savior. Their mouth is full of Cursing and bitterness. Oh, how many people, in spite of the common grace of God, to provide for them, be merciful to them, are full of bitterness and anger. We see so much of that in our society today. Bitterness. Yes, destruction and misery are in their ways their feet are swift to shed blood. Some of the most horrendous accounts of murder have been in our papers of late and heard on the news. Man, in the depths of his fallen nature, has the capacity to be a murderer. And then he says, the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But these individuals lack wisdom. They're in the dark. They're part of the darkness. And then verse 19 of Romans 3 concludes with this. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. 
So if there's one mouth still open, somebody say, well, I want to express my point of view. I, I, I want to claim an exemption. I, I, I'm not in that list. That every mouth may be stopped. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then let's think about the sufficiency of the Savior. He's sufficient in power. It required power for that lame man to get up and walk. And Jesus gave that power necessary. It takes power for one who is dead in trespasses and in sin to be resurrected. John chapter 1 verse 3 All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He has all power. He's the creator. Colossians 1.16 For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He not only created it, he holds it all together. Now, aren't you glad that the Savior we look to has that kind of power? He's the creator. He's the one that holds all things together. Not only is he sufficient in power, he's sufficient in authority. They were questioning. These leaders wanted to know, by what authority, by what name did you accomplish this? Well, Jesus came with authority. He didn't come with an agenda of his own. He came with authority given to him of the Father to execute the Father's will. John chapter 6 verse 38, he says, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And he goes on to say, And this is the Father's will, that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. He was sufficient in doing the work for which he was sent. He came willingly, humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, humbled himself to the death of the cross, came here to carry out the will of the Father. And as he prayed to the Father in John 17, verse 4, he says, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Father, I came here to do the work to which you assigned me. I finished it. It's done. And when he was on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. So when we're talking about Jesus Christ, the Savior, we're talking about one who had sufficient authority, not only power, but able to do that for which he was sent. And furthermore, he was sufficient to suffer the curse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And that was written in the Old Testament. This was a fact. A person that was put on the tree, put on the cross, was viewed as cursed. And Jesus Christ came to redeem us from the curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now this is something difficult for us to comprehend. People sometimes 
particularly if they've seen a movie that depicts the death of Christ, they think about the physical suffering, and it was horrendous. To be nailed to a cross, nails in his hand and his feet, to crown of thorns down on his brow, difficult to breathe in that stretched out position, having to press himself up to get his breath, that was horrendous. But the greatest suffering is that he became a curse for us. We were under the curse and condemnation of the law. But the sins of all who will ultimately believe on Jesus were put upon him. That's beyond our grasp. We can't understand that transfer. We can't imagine what a sight that was to the Father in heaven of whom it is said his eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And now his own son has upon him all the sins of those that were given to him. And the Father turned his back. And Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For those moments, he was forsaken. The curse was upon him. He suffered the wrath of his father, the just punishment for sin. And if it were not for that substitutionary death, there would be no hope for any of us. We would all still be under the curse. But he became a curse for us and redeemed us. He's a sufficient savior. Because he was sufficient to put away our sin. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. There's reference again to the fact that he has all the power necessary. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In the tabernacle of the Old Testament time, when the priest had offered the sacrifice, sprinkled the blood upon the mercy seat, there was no chair. There was no place for him to sit down. Later, when he offered the sacrifice, sprinkled the blood in the holy place in the temple, there was no chair, no place for him to sit down. Because when one sacrifice was made, there was another sacrifice to be made later. On the great day of atonement, when the sacrifice was made, that great day would come about a year later. But when Jesus Christ offered himself without spot to God, he then ascended to the Father and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because he finished the work. Nothing to be added to it. The work of redemption was complete. He paid the price. So he has put away our sins, purged our sins, and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Once you're convicted of your sin, Once the Holy Spirit has shown you what you are and you know I am a guilty sinner before God and deserve nothing but his wrath and you struggle under the weight and guilt of sin and then hear the good news of the gospel through Jesus Christ that sin can be put away. Not because you deserve it. You can't go back and undo it But sin is put away by his sacrifice. And then the exclusivity of the Savior. There is no other name given. All substitutes fail. 
It's very popular these days for somebody to say, well, I just believe if a person's sincere, it doesn't matter what religion it is. It doesn't matter what they believe. As long as they're sincere, they're going to be all right. But when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Jesus didn't say, it doesn't make any difference which road you're on. As long as you feel good about it, that's fine. He says there's two different roads, there's two different gates. There's a broad way, there's a narrow way. The broad way leads to destruction. The narrow way leads to life. The idea that sincerity will take the day, contrary to the teaching of Jesus, contrary to the teaching of the entire Bible. None could be saved by the keeping of the law. Romans 3.20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So somebody might say, while on one hand, I think as long as you're sincere, somebody said, well, no, I think it'll take more than that. I think if you keep the law, everything will be fine. Well, the problem is the law demands perfection. It's not just a matter of saying I'm doing the best I can. The best you can is not good enough because God demands perfection. So by the, lead, by the deeds of the law, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. By the law is the knowledge of sin. You start looking at the law and you begin to see your own sin. You see your own faults, your own failures. It's the schoolmaster, said Paul in the Galatian letter, to bring us to Christ. It informs us, it instructs us, it convicts us. And then somebody else will say, well, I might not be able to keep the law, but I'm going to do some good works to try to make up for it. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he hath saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So he explicitly tells us it's not by works of righteousness. No matter how many good deeds you might try to perform to outweigh the bad deeds, the sin, can't make it. Not by works. And not by an act of man's free will. Man has the idea that by his own action, he can rectify things. But Romans 9.16 says, It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So the fact is, Jesus is the only way. Now, you find people that are greatly offended by that. Say, well, you're so narrow-minded. How can you lay claim to the idea that what you believe is the truth, and therefore what I believe is wrong? Well, that's one of the reasons that Jesus was hated. Because Jesus was very explicit, teaching the fact that he was the only way. Our text says in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And then Jesus himself says in John chapter 14 of the 6th verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Couldn't be any plainer than that. Somebody said, well, I think there's another way. Jesus said there is no other way. Somebody will say, well, I, I think Jesus was a great teacher. Well, if you think he was a great teacher, then believe what he taught. <laughs> if he taught something that wasn't so, he wasn't such a great teacher. 
But because he was the God-man, God in the flesh, we can have absolute confidence that everything he said was true. I am the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no matter who he is, where he is, what his ideas may be, what he was brought up in, what his religion may be, no man can come to the Father but by me. And then let's think about the greatness of the Savior. He paid the price, paid the full price of redemption. Didn't just get you started on the way, help you to move in the right direction. He paid the price. You were in debt. As a violator of God's law, you were deep in debt. And you couldn't pay it. Couldn't make the first payment. Hebrews 9.22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Those sacrifices of the Old Testament, thousands upon thousands of sheep and goats and heifers that were put to death under those ceremonies, for what purpose? The blood of those beasts never put away sin, but it was a message. It was pointing to the fact that one day the Lamb of God would come. One day when John the Baptist was preaching and he saw Jesus in the audience, he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And so it was necessary that blood be shed for remission. First Peter chapter 1 verse 18 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, you can't buy your way to heaven, not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. When they were going to observe that first Passover night, the death angel was going to pass through the land and the firstborn in every family would die unless there was blood on the doorpost. They would keep a lamb up for 14 days that it might be proven to be without spot, without blemish. And then that lamb was slain and its blood sprinkled on the doorpost. Oh, what a night that was. No doubt there were many cries heard throughout the land of Egypt. In the Israel, in the Israelite camp, where the blood had been put on the doorposts, they said, I will pass over you. What was the significance? It was pointing to the fact that one day Jesus Christ would come. And so we are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As that little lamb had to be proven to be without spot and blemish, Jesus was proven to be. He was taken into the wilderness by the Spirit and that Satan tempted him. But he, being tempted in all points like as we are, yet was without sin. So he is the spotless lamb of God. And then furthermore, he's a great savior because he saves the greatest of sinners. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. So if somebody says he just came in the world to teach a lesson, he just came in the world to set a good example, that's not what we read in this inspired book. He came into the world to save sinners. And Paul felt to be the greatest sinner because he opposed the gospel. 
He despised the church. He consented to have Christians put to death. He saw himself as a horrendous sinner. So as the apostle before his conversion saw himself as the greatest of sinners. The good news to that one today who sees I am a sinner. I've been self-centered, self-seeking. I've pleased myself. I've gone my own way. I've violated the first law when he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, heart, soul, and strength. Failed in the first one. You see yourself a great sinner. I have to say that I've observed a change over the years. As has been less respect displayed for the Word of God. As people have been encouraged over the years to work on building their self-esteem so that they feel like they are of utmost importance. They generally have a pretty good feeling about themselves. But I can remember years ago when somebody would come to me in tears and say, I don't know if God would save me. My life is so far from what it should have been. I've gone so long down the wrong path. I've sinned so terribly. You think he'd save me? Here's the good news. He came to save sinners and Paul said, I am the chief and he saved me. Then we read, as Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 15 verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth he not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. What a wonderful Savior. One sheep. Somebody may say, well, let him go. One's not that important. The good shepherd goes out, goes through the valleys and over the hills and through the rain and the cold, wherever till he finds that one lost sheep and he picks it up, lays it on his shoulder and brings it safely to the fold. That's salvation by grace. That's salvation by Jesus Christ. And not only does he bring them safely to the fold, he keeps them. John 19, 28, he says, I give unto them eternal life. This is John 10, rather. John 10, 28. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Can you think of a safer place to be than in the hand of Jesus Christ? And it says, no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. If you have repented of your sin and believed on Jesus as a child of God, you're in His hand. You're safe. You're secure. All the devils of hell might try to get you. They can't do it. You're safe in His hand. He keeps them. And then, just a quick description of some of the things that He's done, is doing, and will do. Matthew one twenty one. his name is called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Psalm 103, verse 12, he separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. Colossians one twenty two. he hath reconciled us. We were alienated from God. We were at enmity against God, but he hath reconciled us through the body of his flesh. Revelation chapter 1, verse 2, he loved us. And washed us from our sins in his own blood. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. Through his blood he has purged our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. Think of that. A guilty conscience can be something that's terribly 
dreadful to bear. But by his sacrifice, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, he purges our conscience from dead works to serve the true and living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, He hath made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. You say, I feel so weak and I'm so full of failure and so unworthy. But you come before Him. He says to come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy. And he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. Not to defend your sin, not to excuse your sin, but he knows where you are. He knows what you are. He's touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to make intercession. Now think about it. If you're sick, you're really miserable, you're really concerned about your condition, you are encouraged when somebody calls you up and says, I'm praying for you. Or when you send a request to the church, will you pray for me? And you know, everybody in the church is praying for you. That's wonderful. We desire that. But think of Jesus Christ praying for you. He ever lives to make intercession, to plead our case, to pray for us. Oh, how favored we are, how rich is his mercy, how marvelous is his grace that he makes intercession for us. And in Hebrews 4.16, he promises grace to help in time of need. Second Corinthians says this, he made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. All things are become new. First John chapter 3 verse 2 says, Now the sons of God, we are now, now are we the sons of God, and we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Think of that. What a wonderful Savior. We have our days of trouble and frustration and discouragement and confusion in this world where there's so much corruption and sin and we struggle with the old fallen nature that's within us. But think of one day seeing Jesus Christ face to face. See Him as He is and be like Him. Be glorified. Have a resurrected body with no more weaknesses. No more corruption in it. No more temptation. No more guilt. No more sin. No more suffering to be with him and be like him forever. Surely we can say with the beloved apostle, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And listen, if you today struggle, wondering where you are, saying I would like to be able to have the comfort and peace that I see some of my friends enjoy because of their faith in Jesus Christ, hear what Jesus says. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He says, he that is a thirst, let him come. Let him come and drink. If you're thirsty for communion and fellowship with God, he says, you come and drink. If you feel burdened with the weight of sin and you say, I need help, I need forgiveness, I need salvation, he says, him that cometh, I will in no wise cast out. If you haven't come before, may you come today.